shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not supposed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she said. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word, the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that tonight, by your power, you would show us yourself. Pray that you would show us yourself. You are the one who stands behind the passage that Molly read. You are the rescuer who comes looking for us. You are the one who finds us in our hiding and in our shame and in our regret. You are the one who speaks to us there. You are the one who goes to bat for us, and you are the one who delivers us. And so do not let us leave this room tonight without seeing you by faith in your word. Pray this in your name and in your power. Amen. I feel like it is um, common knowledge that if you don't deal with your past, it'll creep into your present. If there's something unresolved in your past that you've never really dealt with, somehow it's going to come and wreak havoc in your present circumstances and relationships. That's something that you probably recognize by now. So you could say that things in our past don't stay put so well. And this is the stuff that we call baggage. Maybe um, dismissively you've said that about somebody else, a friend or a significant other uh, of your past. You said she or he just had too much baggage. What you meant is there was things in their past they never really dealt with, and it was having present consequences in the relationship. So what are these things? What are these things that happened in the past but still have present consequences if we don't deal with them especially. So, uh, I don't know, a few examples that might hit home with you or they might get the wheels turning of what they are for you. Maybe your dad's tone with you growing up left you with a pretty strong impression that you were annoying and he kind of wished you weren't around. And when you look at your relationships now, 
it's one long audition to keep people happy with you because you think they think you're annoying too and don't want you around. Your past has creeped into your present and it's radically affecting your relationships. Maybe the painful breakup that you never saw coming, that happened over text, uh, now makes you afraid to open any text from your boyfriend or your girlfriend, even though things might be going well. Because you're like, well, what if? Something in the past that hasn't been dealt with affects the present. Could be a dark memory. It's something that you did that you never thought you'd do, you wished you hadn't done, but you can't undo it. Maybe that's the stuff that happened to you. You wished it had never happened to you, but it did, and there's no undoing it. And it's burned into your mind. And the reason you're so private and buttoned up and prefer to stay at small talk is you're afraid that people will know you the way you know you. That they'll feel the shame that you feel. So when we think about our pasts, we've got to think of two things. If you're here new tonight, I've got to inform you, we've been spending a month so far talking about the beauty of our past. The God who made us for himself. Originally good. For him. Don't belong to ourselves, belong to him. That's the most significant part of your past. But there's another part of our past too. So Genesis 1 and 2 is not just part of your past, part of your origin story. But Genesis 3 is as well, what Molly just read and what follows after it. That's part of your story too. And that part of your past comes with shame and secrets and confusions and carelessness and wounds that you have given to other people and wounds that you've gotten from other people. And what Molly read too, though it's not your biography, it's your ancestor's biography. And you're probably to the age also by now where you've realized your family story is your story because your family has a huge impact on you and how you operate. There's more ways than just that that Adam and Eve's story affects your story. They represented you before God. But that's a helpful way to think about it too as the story of your parents, the story of your ancestors is also your story and their past creeps into your present. Their past creeps into your present just like your past creeps into your present. Especially if it's unresolved and never dealt with and never looked at. Genesis 3 is where the first domino falls. Historically, this is the first domino that fell with any human being, but it's the domino that knocked all the dominoes over in your life too, with your desires, with your thoughts, with your hopes, with your habits, with your addictions, with your regrets, with your shame. All those dominoes fell down because this domino fell down in this account that's written on the page. Now, the, uh, again, if you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, if this is new to you, um, Christians will, will use this terminology called the fall. And it's describing the entrance, uh, a kind of evil jumping the species barrier. You know, like in the Outbreak movies, it's like whatever the monkey had, it's like scratches a kid and now the kid has it and it's jumped into humans. This is how evil outside of us became evil inside of us. 
your thoughts, your desires, our actions. And when we talk about a fall, the question that it raises is from what height? If you've done freshman fellowship here, I'm not about to repeat what you've heard year after year, but when it comes to falls, distance is key. Is the Bible talking about a survivable fall that you fix yourself from or that I'm about to give you some advice to optimize yourself out of these mistakes? Psalm 8 says that God created you a little bit lower than the angels. God says in Genesis 1, I made you in my likeness. You look like me. God says that about you. So what heights have we fallen from? Not the rafters, the heavens. Is that a survivable fall? Well, the question is obvious and it answers itself. It can be hard to look at our past, particularly at our past, but it can also be hard to look at this past. Uh, I, I was watching a YouTube short the other day and the algorithm blessed me with this good one. It was a bull shark researcher. And she said this, if you're in the ocean and a bull shark starts charging at you, establish eye contact and swim towards the shark. And I'm like, lady, who are you? Like, who in the world is going to... Okay, this shark is coming at me at like 20 miles an hour in the water. I'm in the ocean and I'm going to turn around and like outstare this thing to show that I'm the alpha. Your past and even this past, when we get into it, can feel daunting. It can feel like your predator. It's going to take you down. But the reason God is talking to us about this is because it is critical. Because of what we've said. God is wanting us to not just deal with our past like going to therapy might help you deal with pieces of your past. He's, he wants us to deal with the past, which includes this fall and all the dominoes it knocked in everybody's lives, but yours also in particular. So if we don't look at this stuff, if we don't talk about this, if we don't hear God when he's explaining to you part of your origin story, the trauma that's still with you, is that we'll underestimate it. We'll, we'll, you'll misinterpret everything in your life, everything in the world. You'll misinterpret it because you don't have all the information. You're operating on a tiny little sliver of reality. And so you'll miss everything. But we'll also underestimate that word, sin, this word, evil, which uh, the way that it's presented in ads is like, you naughty person, you ate too much chocolate. It was decadent. Sin has talked about this little thing like I made a mistake, like oops, need to work on that. But it's proper dimensions in the way scripture talks about it, the way God tells you, if he defined it, if he painted a picture for you of its effects, of what it unleashed in the world. There's a Scottish um, hymn writer from a while ago named Horatius Bonner and he said this, he said, the flood of evil that has come from one single sin, what Molly read, the flood of evil that has come out of that, we seem to have forgotten. If sin is such a little thing as we're prone to deem it, what is the significance of this long, sad story? Do earth's 10,000 graveyards, where human love lies buried, tell no darker tale? Do the millions upon millions of broken hearts and heavy eyes say that sin is such a little thing? 
does the moaning of the hospital or the carnage of the battlefield, the blood-stained sword, and the death-dealing artillery, does it not proclaim that sin is just a little casualty and the human heart the source of all goodness? Does the earthquake, the volcano, the hurricane, the flood speak nothing of sin's desperate evil? And does man's aching head and empty heart and burdened spirit and shaded brow and weary brain and tottering limbs not utter in a voice articulate beyond mistake that sin is crime which God hates with an infinite hatred in which he and his righteousness must condemn and avenge? He saw it closer to its true proportions. And he traced all of the other little miseries and frustrations and darkness and shame and regret in our lives, he traced it back to its headwaters of where it came from. The problem beneath all the little problems. The pain beneath all the bigger pains. And he sees it in his true, um, true dimensions. That's the global historical kind of a picture of the effects of the fall, the domino effects of this one decision to find ourselves walking away from God, not walking towards him. But what about the individual? You might have heard this before, we've talked about it before, but a, a theologian named Fleming Rutledge said, to be in sin or to be fallen means to be catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be helplessly trapped in one's own worst self. This is where it's like looking at the bull shark. And you might be tempted to be like, no, I'm going to splash and get away. I'm going to shut down. I'm going to get back to what i got to study for for tomorrow. But God would invite you to keep looking because of why he talks about this and why he shows this to us. These individual ways that our past comes up in our future, you might think it's all like things that we would notice. Again, like the bad habit or I looked at this again or I lost my temper again, but it's often way more subtle and pushed down. It's operating like an operating system. It's in the background and we're not paying attention to it, but it's still wreaking havoc. I saw an interview recently uh, with Billie Eilish. It was really interesting. It was an Apple Music interview. They had some famous interviewer guy who was asking pretty fascinating questions of her, and he was basically trying to get at what's the story behind the What Was I Made For song that you wrote for the Barbie movie. And she said, um, Greta Gerwig texted her one day, didn't even know each other, he texted her and said, hey, would you and your brother come in, and I want to show you what we have of the movie so far, some of the footage, and if it sparks anything, write a song for the movie, whatever, you choose. If it doesn't, that's fine, but I'd love for... I love your work. I'd love for you to be a part of it if you can. And so uh, her and her brother go into the studio a few days later and they watch, you know, whatever footage they'd assembled thus far. It kind of gave them a taste of where the movie was going, where the plot was going. And they think, I think we can work with this. And so they go back and her and her brother are, are working over the next few days. She said they wrote the song in a few days. Um, and then she said this. She said the first day... I was writing the song from Barbie's perspective. I was just kind of channeling the movie. It wasn't about me. It was tr me trying to put myself in Barbie's shoes from where I saw the plot was going in the movie. But she said, this is what happened after that. I realized after a couple of days, I was writing for myself and I didn't even know it. I realized this is exactly how I feel 
and I didn't even know I was saying it. And then she turns to the camera, and she leans into the camera lens, and she says, every lyric, you hear me? Every single lyric is exactly how I feel. This is my life. This is the song, you've, uh, I wish someone could sing it or we could play it. It would be a lot better than reading it. It's never good when you read a song, but here we go. She wrote, and remember, she's talking about herself. She thought she was channeling Barbie. This is her. I used to float. Now I just fall down. I used to know. But now I'm not sure now what I was made for. What was I made for? Taking a drive? I was an ideal. Looks so alive. Turns out I'm not real. Just something you paid for. What was I made for? Because I, I don't know how to feel. But I want to try. I don't know how to feel. But someday I might. Someday I might. When did it end? All the enjoyment. I'm sad again. Don't tell my boyfriend. It's not what he's made for. What was I made for? You might not have known, or you saw the movie or heard that song. It's a beautiful song. You're wondering, what's all the meaning behind that? Well, she was the meaning. What I appreciate about it is the vulnerability and the brutal honesty. There was an article written about that song in the New York Times by Maureen Dowd, and she said, this song is an anthem for our generations. An anthem. An anthem is a song that applies to everybody. The national anthem. An anthem is a song everybody can hum along to the lyrics because it's true for them too. And she looks at your generation and my generation. She says, this captures what we feel. What were we made for? Musically and lyrically, when you, when you watch it, when you listen to it, she's yearning out of this sense of hopelessness, that she, this, this, this nagging, agonizing ambiguity, she's hoping, she's yearning that one day she'll figure it out. That's what the last stanza says. Someday I might. Where does that come from? If you've been here the past few weeks, we've been marinating in this God who made you for himself who made you to work with him in the world, to bless the world, to bring healing to the world. How do we get to what was I made for? When we were just at, this is who you were made for. The fall, your past, and it is your past. And you've got to start thinking of it as your past, your biography in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It comes more specifically from the alienation, the breaking, the breach, the ripping that happened as a result, as a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision 
that's talked about in this passage. There's a guy named Chris Watkins. He wrote a pretty brilliant book, and he worked through this. Uh, It's simplest and most succinct in the way that he worked through it, so I'm just going to repeat some of what he said. All the alienation that's present in this passage and the couple of verses that didn't fit on the page, but that come right after it. God is alienated from us as a result of our sin. Verse 11. Um, you, this sin has put distance. It's put a breach between God and us. This disobedience, this shifting of allegiances from us as God's image bearers and his people made to live for him and with him and in his love to shifting allegiances to the devil. We are alienated from God. So it's not just that he's alienated from us, but we're alienated from him and that's why we hide from him. He's a threat. He's scary. Get him away from me. The one who breathed life into your nostrils. Colossians 1, the one who upholds your life and every molecule in it. The one who's given you every good gift. Get him away from me. He scares me. Alienation. We're alienated from ourselves. Verse 7, we are literally not comfortable in our own skin anymore. Safety comes in hiding from each other, in covering ourselves, in pretending, in letting you believe a narrative about me that I know is not true, but that I will continue to allow you to believe because I can't stomach the thought of you seeing actual me. We are alienated from our bodies. Verse 16, which is not on this page, but our bodies fight back against us now with pain, with frustration with decay. We're alienated from each other. Just scan between verses 12 and 13. Blaming, blame shifting, lying, hiding, covering, double dealing, self-dealing. We're alienated from the rest of creation. Two weeks ago we talked about this, God cursing the ground and The ground itself, the world itself, creation itself now being in resistance to us, not easily yielding its fruit, but only with sweat and blood and tears. This means that sin doesn't just affect our relationship with God and I need Jesus to forgive me and get me away out of God's punishment. This means that sin affects every single relationship that you and I have with your studies and how you study, with your use of time, with how you relate to food, how you relate to exercise, how you relate to sleep, how you think of God, how you talk with your mouth, how we use and deploy our sexuality, how we do relationship, what we think of mom and dad. Everything is corrupted now. Everything is infected. Everything is alienated and we're alienated from it. And again, not just the immaterial world. We're not just talking about spiritual stuff. Everything. Material and immaterial. Relational and not relational. So those are the consequences of the past. And and you've seen how they they bubble up into the present. Your short temper just didn't come out of nowhere. Or the gossipy tongue just didn't come out of nowhere. Um, or or, Or being a worrier just didn't come out of nowhere. There's a lineage We come from a long line of warriors, a long line of gossipers, a long line of murderers, a long line of people who use our stuff for our own gain.
So we've talked about the consequences from the past and how they bubble up a little bit into the present. We've talked about the ripple effects of that one domino that fell and how it knocked all the other dominoes over. We've talked about the importance of paying attention to our past. But let's spend the remainder of our time looking at really just a couple of things. The psychology of sin. And as we do, you're going to see the psychology that was in Adam and Eve's mind in your mind and in your thought patterns. And it just proves the point all the more of what we've been talking about. And we'll talk about, lastly, the solution to that. But what is, what is the serpent or what is Satan's strategy of temptation here? Again, if this is new to you, the Bible talks elsewhere of who this serpent is, of what the backstory on him is. But for the sake of time and the fact that it's not in this passage, I'm going to let that pass by tonight. We can talk after if you want to. But what's the strategy of temptation here? It's actually been something we've been talking about every week. We've dipped our toes in this stuff already. So I'll be brief with it. But here is the narrative that Satan, or the accuser, manifested here as a serpent, what he is pushing on this king of creation, Adam, and this queen of creation, Eve, your representative, your ancestor. This is the psychology he's inviting them into. This is the satanic psychology he's inviting them into. Eve, I'm concerned you're not going to be able to reach your full potential with this God. What's up with this tree that he put here and telling you not to eat of the fruit of it? I mean, that's a little bizarre, don't you think? He's holding you back. He's holding you down. Or better yet, is he holding you back? Don't you think you could fly a little higher without this weight on you, these rules, these prohibitions? Aren't these fences suffocating you? It's time to make your own decisions. It's time to stop feeling bad for following your heart and blazing your own path. Put all that in a blender. What comes out? This sentence, this idea that he's pushing on them, that he pushes on you and me. And I feel it about every day. For your life to be enlarged, God's presence in your life has to be diminished. You feel that? For your life to really take off, God's presence in your life really has to take a back roll. Throttle down how much of him is in your life so you can throttle up a little bit more of you. And that's the satanic lie that he's pushing. And it's the spirit of that age and it's the spirit of this age too. Um, I knew a man from one of our past churches who was a leader in the church. And he left his wife of 20 years and his four children. And you want to know what he told her? Th by the way, this woman is one of the most amazing wives and mothers and people Anna and I have ever known. Humble, fun, gracious. You want to know what he told her? He had the gall to look at her and say, you've held me back. I can't live my life with you and the kids. And he walked out the door. 
A satanic lie out there whispered in an ear becomes a satanic lie in a heart that takes root and begins to dominate not just your thoughts, your decisions, your dreams. A man can't go to his wife and say that like, oh, I had this thought on a Monday and then Tuesday we're having that conversation. For years, that grew unresisted. That lie and the alienation and the devastation that that brought, you can imagine. Like we said last week with the fence illustration, talking a human being away from their maker, away from their God, is talking a fish out of the water to find liberation. It's insanity. Adam and Eve were already like God. And somehow they got convinced that they weren't and needed something else to become like him. Did God really say that? He's holding back on you. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, then you'll be like him. I don't know how long they'd lived with their God in unimaginable uh, bliss and excitement and vibrance. I don't know. But they had that with him. And over time, and I don't know how long the devil was tempting them, if that was uh, probably not a day, days, weeks, a little bit here, a little bit there, and it ate away at them. And they went from union with the God who made them and that they knew well to relational amnesia. And so literally, here is the original man and woman sitting in the Garden of Eden and now they're humming, what was I made for? What was I made for? They're in the epicenter of creation. And it's all just gone south. And they don't know where they are. And they don't know who they are. And they don't know who this God is who's coming for them. The effects of the fall. Eve had been sounding like the devil before she gave in to his temptation. And Adam had too, by the way. Uh, Adam has the illustrious role of being the quiet guy just sitting there watching all this go down as Eve throws herself under the bus and Adam says, let me join you under the bus. They're both thinking like the devil. And then they act like him and they turn their back on God. And these are our parents. And these are now the family impulses and the family instincts and the family baggage that crops up all over the place. This is DIY morality. And what the devil is really inviting them into and what he invites you and I into as well uh, is really, I mean, I, this is cheesy, but I couldn't unthink this when I thought it. This is, this is Dwight in the office, the assistant to the regional manager, and the devil's like, no. Assistant regional manager. Adam and Eve are now debating with God about what's right and wrong, about what's life and death, about what leads to good, about what leads to bad. Assistance to the regional manager. Now assistant regional managers throwing their weight around with God, sitting in judgment over God himself. Monday morning quarterbacking what he has said and what their opinions are about what he has said. 
another moment when um, I feel seen and known by this passage because I feel this psychology in me often. Standing in judgment over God today in your mind might sound like rest, Sabbath, no thanks, not now. I'll fall behind. Everybody else is still studying. Everybody else is still grinding. I can't do that. Are you kidding? Maybe another day. I wasn't made for that. Forgive my enemies. Do you have any idea what he did to me? That's a cute idea. I hope some people can do that. I never will. I was made for community? No. I can do that later. I don't need people. I feel fine on my own. Or perhaps if you experience more doubt and skepticism about the claims of the Bible, you might be finding yourself thinking, unless you show me irrefutable proof of this or that, you're standing in judgment over a God who has shown you irrefutable proof all around you and in you, and you're saying, it's not enough. I want better. Do better, be better. It's what it sounds like then and it's what it sounds like now. The list can go on and on. We do this with gender. We do this with sexuality. We do this with how God has called us to pray for our country and our leaders. We do this with our politics. We do this with our relationships. We do this with what we think of our parents. We do this with how we treat our bodies. We sit in judgment over God himself and it feels like a very comfortable seat very well worn for us. Look, here's where we're going to shift gears to what do we do with this and how do we get out of this, but I just remember what I said at the beginning. Until we see the actual scope of our past and what's happened and the trauma and the shame and the regret and the failure, until you see the dimensions of that, you're going to be destined to live a life of looking for superficial 10-second fixes. And it's never going to work. And you're going to know that it never works. And you're not going to be whatever, however old Billy is, you're going to be an 80-year-old saying, what was I made for? I don't know what this whole lifetime was about. What was this about? I don't even know who I am. When we see the true dimensions and the true scope, it leaves you with one place only to run. Yesterday, I was uh, working and I got a text from Anna. It was a screenshot from my littlest daughter, uh, her preschool teacher. She's five, four. I always get it wrong, sorry. It's good that Anna's here. She's like, no, you idiot, it's four. She's four. And yesterday, the teacher, I guess the teacher sent this out to let the parents know if their kid tattles on the teacher or whatever, like, here's the context. So she sent a text and she basically said, look, the class got in trouble yesterday on the playground. They were misbehaving. Came in there, gently corrected the class, whatever, and my little daughter has just such a sensitive heart, and she said, Lena came over to me afterwards, and she was sobbing. And she said, do you still love me? Guys in the room, listen to me. Whether you feel your emotions or not, that is the question that is deep in your heart that you ask everyone around you and you ask God himself. Do you still love me? Girls, you feel that too. You ask that too. You help us feel it because you might actually feel it more. Do you still love me? After what we've done? 
after what I did, after this kind of a past, could you still love me? What does God do? That's really the million dollar question. I love that the Bible doesn't stop on page three. Don't you know it could have? This is just the beginning. What does God do? Some say he comes to condemn. Uh, there's a lot of people in the church, and I might have been guilty of this in my past, who say God can't tolerate to be in the presence of sin. He can't tolerate being with sinners because he's holy. It's well intended. They're trying to protect his honor, but God himself doesn't try to protect his honor that way. God himself says, if you want to find me, I'll be with the sinners. It's present in this passage. Geographically, spatially, where do you find God? with his arms crossed far from them, saying, I can't be in your presence. You find him with this instinctual move toward Adam and Eve, not asking where are you because he couldn't find them, but asking them where are you because they didn't know where they were or who they were or whose they were. But he's with them. And is he the first responder who's the cops or the rescuer? If you look at what he says and if you look at what he does and the questions that he's asking to help them understand what's just happened, you realize pretty quickly he's not there as the police. He's there as the rescuer to break them out of the car that they've just totaled catastrophically. That he had warned them about. God moves towards sinners. He did it in Genesis 3. He did it in Zechariah 3 that we talked about last spring with the high priest Joshua in his filthy clothes and God moving towards those filthy clothes to replace them with his own. He did it in Isaiah's day when he touched Isaiah's unclean lips and made them clean. He did it in when Jesus, who was God in the flesh, took on a body and came into this brokenness and into this darkness and into this misery and into this hell. to break its back and make it heaven again and to redeem it and to bring people back to this God himself. God as the first responder is Jesus in the flesh. Where is God? Too holy to be around sinners? Sin doesn't have leverage over God. He has leverage over it. He is with sinners and he is for them. I want to end with this poem. This is a, an Anglican guy who has, uh, he has put the Psalms to poetry. And he captures really beautifully just what God was doing um, on the edge of that brush that Adam and Eve were hiding in, terrified from him. This is from their perspective. In your deep silence and your mystery, you led me to confess and be forgiven. You gave me the relief of honesty. How long and how bitterly I might have striven with all the guilt that I could hardly name. How painfully my heart might have been torn by hidden memories and secret shame. Instead, you blessed me with a new beginning. Unbound me from the bands and bonds of shame and blame. And you called me to come forth like Lazarus and start my life again. Genesis 3.15 is the first and clearest mark of good news and gospel that we see in the Bible. 
as God promises, I'm going to come in human form to rescue you from what they got you in and what you've gotten you in. I said it last week, but I'll read it again. Galatians 4, 4. God has sent his son, born in the fullness of time, born under a woman, in other words, a son of Eve, born under the law and the curse of the law to rescue those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, how do you deal with your past? Jesus Christ is the only way to decisively deal with your past and to give you back a future and a present with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, these are not just words. You have written these words and you speak them every time we read your word or your word is preached. You speak them into our eardrums and into our hearts because you are still showing up to hiding sinners. You are still saying you cannot get yourself out of that. You can't improve your way out of death. And you, and you touch us and you make us alive and you call us to live by faith in you, our only hope. So I pray that you would give the gift of faith and perfect the gift of faith where you've given that. And even begin tonight, we pray in your holy name. Amen.